this Christmas season. Um, so if you are watching online or don't know me, um, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, so it's just a joy to welcome you here as we enter and continue celebrating this um, Advent season as we prepare ourselves for the birth of the Savior. A couple couple notes about that. So after our service today at at 10.30, our children will be performing their Christmas program, God Had a Plan, and so I invite you to stick around and watch that. If you're watching online, we'll live stream that as well. Um, also, we have uh, the Vanderblooms here with us this morning. They're a, a missionary family. So at the end of our service, they're going to share just some of what's going on in their lives. Um, they can't be recorded, and so... How we're going to do that, we're going to have them come out at the end of the service. We'll kind of end the main bulk of the service. We'll cut the live stream so they're not being recorded, and then we'll invite them up. So even though we kind of end the service, I invite you to just stay in your seat until we hear from them, and then our worship team will come and close us. So again, it's just a delight to be with you here this morning, um, and pray that we would just worship God together this morning. Would you stand with us as we begin to sing this morning?
morning. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Sea Free, and we're super excited that you're here with us this morning. Um, it's Christmas season, and Christmas is always a fun time. Um, as we look back on the rest of the year, I want to just uh, extend a thank you for all those who have been giving so faithfully this year. It's been awesome to see even through these kind of hard times that people are still willing to give and, and worship in that way. So thank you for doing that. If you want to continue to give, you can give online at our website. You can. We also have a text to give that is also on there. Or in the back, there are some plates on a back table there. If you would just bow in prayer with me. Dear Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this um, chance to gather together, Lord, before Christmas. We thank you what Christmas for what Christmas represents, your son coming to earth as a baby, not as a king, not as a conqueror, not as a um, ruler, but in humble guise, you came to this earth and you you started out in a dirty stable, not in a palace. But you came in the form that, that we needed, Lord, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your sacrifice and your accepted, acceptance of that sacrifice when you rose again on the third day. We ask your blessing on this time together as we look towards Christmas. Help us to just focus on what the season is really about and not all the other distractions that end up clouding kind of what the season um, has ended up to to be help us to worship well and to um, hear your words through pastor tim's message and just give us a great sunday together as the body of christ we love you father god in jesus name amen do you stand with us as we continue in worship Oh 
Celebrate the fourth and final Sunday of Advent by lighting the candle of love. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made, us, is made complete in us. 
These verses remind us that God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we can experience eternal life through him. And because we have experienced the love of the Father, we are able to extend that love to people around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for showing us your love by sending Jesus into the world so that we could experience eternal life with you. As we remember how much you love us this Christmas season, help us to share that love with others as well. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This next song we're going to sing is kind of a special music piece. If you know it, feel free to sing along. Um, It's called Love Came Down, and it's sung by Kim Walker Smith. Um, And just thinking about the Advent candle of love, I thought it really, the song encompassed that theme well. Love coming down to us. Him loving us first. Um, So just feel free to sing along or feel free to just sit and listen to the lyrics. Oh, 
Father, I confess it for myself like how often that fact that love came down how often I don't grasp the full weight of that truth how often I take for granted what you did for us in sending Jesus that as we just sang unto us is born the Savior of the world and how how easy it is to let the familiarity of the Christmas story make me numb to the glorious truth that that is, God. So I pray for each of us here this morning as we, we hear the story of your son's birth from your word, that we would be amazed, that we'd be surprised, we'd be delighted, we would be in awe at how much you love us and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing I forgot to mention in the announcements earlier is that at, on Christmas Eve at 6 o'clock we will gather here for um, a worship service, so I invite you to join us for that. So, so this guy named Stephen Walk, he was deployed with the Army 1st Cavalry Division in January 1969. And over the course of the next six months, Walk was wounded twice in battle. And the second wound was quite serious. Like, serious enough that he had to be sent back to the United States to receive medical treatment. And soldiers in previous wars who had been sent back because they were injured in the line of duty often received heroes welcome from a grateful nation. But Wauk had a very different experience. As he rode strapped to a gurney in the back of a retrofitted bus that was being used as an ambulance, Wauk saw a group of civilians stop to watch as the bus pulled into the hospital. And so wanting to acknowledge them, Wauk gave them the peace sign. But instead of getting the peace sign in return, Welk got the middle finger while crowds yelled obscenities at the bus. Other soldiers who return around the same time tell stories of being spat on by people, of being denied services. And the reason for all this mistreatment was that Welk and these other soldiers were returning from the unpopular Vietnam War. And people took out their anger at the war on these soldiers. But of course, like these soldiers had no say in how or if the war was fought. They had no say in whether the United States would stay in the war. Like Walk had enlisted to fight for his country. He had gone where he was ordered, he had done what he was told, and as a result, he had been injured not once, but twice, as he fought for his country. In those respects, Walk was no different than thousands of soldiers who returned from, say, World War II to a hero's welcome. But instead of the hero's welcome that Welk deserved, he returned, rejected, and despised. We see a very similar story play out at the birth of Jesus. Only the gap between the welcome that Jesus deserved and the one he received was even greater 
than the gap that Welk experienced. Phil Reichen puts it this way. He says, What kind of welcome did he deserve? Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation come and worship him. He deserved to have every creature in the entire universe, from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect, come to his cradle and give him praise. He deserved to have the creation itself offer him worship with rock-crying glory and the galaxies dancing for joy. But as we see in today's passage, the welcome that Jesus receives cannot be further from the welcome that Jesus deserves. And so we're going to jump into this passage in a minute, but as we do that, I'm very aware that for many of us, this is a very familiar passage. Even if you didn't grow up going to church, you haven't been coming to church for long, like, you probably know the basic outline of the story of Jesus' birth. And that's not a, not a bad thing, right? It's good to know the first step of how God came to a broken and lost world to offer salvation. But that familiarity can also cause problems. In particular, because when we're familiar with a story, the things in the story that should surprise us often fail to do so. So the Christmas story, it's this incredible story of God entering into human existence. But it's not just that. It's the story of God entering into human existence in ways that should be utterly surprising. And so as we walk through this passage this morning, I want us to try as best we can to forget what we know, forget our familiarity with this story, and try to hear it and see it with fresh eyes so we can be surprised anew at what's taking place. So with that in mind, let's jump in. Starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And so this, this Caesar Augustus, who's mentioned here, was a guy who was originally named Octavian. We don't have time to go into a full, extensive history of the Roman of Rome, but it's important to know that this Caesar Augustus, this Octavian, is generally considered the first Roman emperor. He's the nephew of Julius Caesar, who was the last leader of the Roman Republic. And so when Julius Caesar died, Octavian's one of three people who kind of vie for power in Rome. And eventually, Octavian wins. And in 27 AD, he had given the title Augustus by the Roman Senate and made emperor of the entire Roman world. All that to say, this Caesar Augustus is a very skilled politician. He had consolidated power in such a way that it gave him authority and political power, like more political power than almost anyone in history. And here, in this passage, he uses that power to order a census to be taken of the entire Roman world. And the the purpose of this census was for taxation reasons. The Roman Empire is huge. 
that they had conquered from far-flung places. And part of the deal when you were conquered by Romans that you had to pay taxes to Rome. But because the empire is so vast, so spread out, it can be a bit of an administrative nightmare to make sure that everyone is paying the right amount of taxes. And so to make sure that no one's getting away with paying less than they should, Caesar Augustus issues this decree calling for a census. Right? It's, just a, it's a huge display of power. It's like today, if you were to drive from Rome to Nazareth, right? so Caesar's in Rome, Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth, Mary, yeah, Mary Joseph are in Nazareth, so to make that drive today, that's like a 2,500-mile drive. So for context, that's about the same length of from New York to Los Angeles. It's a long ways away. And so look, from 2,500 miles away, like Caesar issues a decree that makes a young man and, a, and his very pregnant future wife leave their home and make a treacherous journey to his ancestral home. That's an impressive display of power to be able to do that. In an age before any kind of high-speed communication, one man can speak a word and people thousands of miles away do what he says. That's impressive authority. Which is why it's surprising that Caesar uses his power ultimately not to achieve its own purposes, but God's purposes. If there was ever a man of whom you could say, like, this man does no one else's bidding, it would be Caesar. But it turns out that Caesar actually was ultimately doing God's bidding. He was being used by God to achieve God's purposes. Some 700 years before this is written, God had revealed to the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So Micah 5, 2, we read, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. They make that prophecy. But then God appears to a virgin in Nazareth, some 85 miles away from Bethlehem. And he tells her that she's going to bear the Messiah which seems to create a problem. Like, how is God going to fulfill Micah's prophecy when the mother of the Messiah lives a four-day journey from Bethlehem? And perhaps more importantly, why? Like, why did God do it this way? Like, why did God make it so hard for the prophecy to be fulfilled? Like, Micah could have just as easily said, right, but you, Nazareth, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Or God could have chosen a young virgin in Bethlehem to be the mother of Jesus. We've talked before about how Mary didn't do anything to deserve to be chosen. It was a gift of God's grace to her. And so God could have just as easily shown that grace to a virgin in Bethlehem. He didn't do either of those things. He made it hard seemingly, in order to show his matchless power. God used Caesar Augustus' display of earthly power to show that ultimate power, ultimate authority, belongs to God and God alone. The decree of a census, 
that the creator first appeared to be like this great show of Caesar's power. But in the end, it actually served to prove God's sovereignty. Caesar's decree was part of God's plan to bring about God's purposes. And as he had done with rulers in the Old Testament, like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, God here shows that once again, even the actions of pagan rulers only serve to achieve his purposes. And this should cause us to stop and be in awe of the might of our God. When we do that, and we stop to consider his sovereignty over even the rulers of the world, that should give us comfort and confidence that our God is in control and working things out for his purposes, no matter what is going on in the world. But just, like, think of all the people, not just Mary and Joseph, but all the people who have been affected by this decree. All the people who would have been seriously inconvenienced by having to travel to their ancestral home for the sake of Cyrus's, or Caesar's census. And, and certainly Mary wasn't the only one on the brink of giving birth. Like, I just think about, like, if my wife was eight months pregnant, and I found out I need to make an 85-mile trip on foot because some power-drunk, far-off ruler wanted to make sure he was squeezing every last penny out of me, like, I'd be upset. I would wonder why this was happening. I'd wonder where God was in all of this. Why was he letting this happen? But of course, God had a very good reason. He was letting it happen because it was part of his plan to bring glory to his name by offering salvation to the world. I just couldn't see it. And the same is true now. There's a lot going on in the world that might make us wonder why. That might make us wonder where God is. But this story is a call to remember that God is sovereign. And he is working things out for his glory. If mighty Caesar was merely doing God's business and issuing this decree for a census, we can be confident that nothing that is happening now is outside of God's control. And so because of this decree, because of God working through Caesar, Mary and Joseph set off for Bethlehem. We pick up the story in verse 6, and we read, While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And so, in more traditional translations, this phrase is translated, there was no room for them in the inn. But I think the NIV here, by translating it guest room, actually gets it right. In the New Testament, there are two words that can be used for like somewhere a traveler would stay. And one word is the word for like a formal commercial inn. And that's the word that's used like for where the good Samaritan brings the beaten man for healing. It's a formal commercial inn. But the other is the more general word that means generally just guest room. So for example, at the end of Jesus' life, 
Jesus will tell his disciples to make arrangements for the Passover that will become the Last Supper. And he tells them to approach a certain man and say to them, say to him, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then Jesus says, he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. And so that, that word translated guest room there is the same word that Luke uses here. And so it seems like Luke has more about a picture of a, a guest room than a commercial formal inn. And so, like, if you have this picture of this, like, heartless innkeeper, like, turning Mary and Joseph away, like, I don't want to burst your bubble, but that probably didn't happen. But it still leaves a lot of options of what's going on here. Right? Like, it's possible that Mary and Joseph traveled to the home of some of Joseph's relatives, but because of the census, there was other family also there, and so there was no room in the guest room that the family had in their house. But in many homes at that time, especially poorer homes, if they kept their, they kept their animals in a room in the lower level, while the family stayed in the upper level. And this, like, the, having the animals on the lower level helped kind of harness body heat from the animals and helped heat the house. And so it's possible that Mary and Joseph were told to go stay in the lower level of the family's home in the room where they kept the animals. Like, or there's a tradition that dates back to Justin Martyr in 150 A.D. that Jesus was born in a cave. Like the present day church of the nativity in Bethlehem is built over a cave where it's claimed Jesus was born. And whether or not that church is in the right place is not really important. But one thing that struck me when I visited Bethlehem, like just how like rugged the terrain is. It is a city built on the side of a mountain. And because of that, there are caves everywhere. And like those caves are used for a wide variety of things, including keeping animals. Right? So it's entirely possible that Jesus was born in a cave because no one would make room for him. But the fact of the matter is, ultimately, we just don't know where Jesus was born. But that's okay. Because if Luke thought it was important for us to know, he would have told us. While he doesn't tell us exactly where Jesus was born, he tells us enough to make one thing perfectly clear. That's the second thing in the passage that should surprise us, which is that the almighty God of the universe came in humility. He was born in humble circumstances. The God who spoke galaxies into existence. The God who created all the majestic sights of earth. The God who existed before time began. God the Son who sat at the right hand of the Father in all the glories of heaven. That God gave up all those glories and came to earth to be born as a baby. But not only did he come to be born as a baby, he came to be born in the most humble circumstances imaginable. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder. But to become poor 
at the very poorest of mankind, and lowly at the very lowliest, that is a love that passeth knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. Never let us forget that through this humiliation, Jesus has purchased for us a title to glory. Can Jesus come to earth and then born in a position of power and live a life of power and leisure? Even that would have been far more than we deserve. But that he would come and choose to be born in these humble circumstances, that is the wonder of wonders. And so often when we when the birth of Jesus is portrayed in movies or we sing about it in songs, like the moment of Jesus' birth is treated as almost idyllic. Right? Like we sing lyrics like, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Or like, the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. But those lyrics simply aren't true. No, they're not true. Like, to treat them as true diminishes how fully Jesus entered into human experience. He came, he became fully human. One of my favorite musicians is a guy named Andrew Peterson. He has a Christmas album called Behold the Lamb. And one of the songs on that album is called Labor of Love. And in it he writes, It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. We need to appreciate, we need to grasp how real of an experience of humanity Jesus experienced. Jesus came into humble and harsh conditions. The question then is, why? Why did Jesus come? And in particular, why did he come in such humble conditions? In Hebrews 2.17 we read, He, that's Jesus, had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus had to go up the glories of heaven and become like us, so that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That he might pay the penalty that we deserve for all the things that we had done wrong. And the fact that he came in such a humble matter, manner sets the pattern for the rest of his life. Jesus lived a life marked by humility. Paul writes, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The life that started with the humiliation of being wrapped in swaddling cloth and laid in a manger would end with the even greater humiliation of being wrapped in burial cloth and laid in a tomb. 
that the God of the universe gave up all the glories and riches of heaven to be born in the humblest of circumstances. The God who created every person he ever interacted with lived a life of humility and service to others. And his life ended in the ultimate humiliation, being despised and scorned and mocked as he hung on the cross. The life that began in a stable because there was no room for him in a guest room ended on a cross because people had no room for him as Lord of their life. Yet he came. He came knowing exactly how his life would play out. Knowing exactly how much he would suffer, he came. And he came for one reason, one reason alone. Because he loved you so much that he wanted to make a way for your sins to be forgiven, no matter what it cost him. And if we're able to like, put aside, again, our familiarity with this story, right, that should surprise us. Right? That the God we rejected through our sin, the God whose love we did nothing to earn, that God would leave the glories of heaven and live a life of humility all because he loved you. That ought to surprise us. That ought to amaze us. It should blow us away that God would come to us in such humility. But once he did come, like you would think that he would want to announce it as far and as wide and to the most influential people possible. But that's not what happens either. Continuing in verse 8, we read, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. So surely, from a human perspective, it would have made sense for the angel to announce the birth of God's Son to a group of people with influence. A group of people who could get the word out. People who had reputations that would cause them to be believed. But the third surprise of this passage is that a glorious chorus of angels announces the incarnation of God, not to anyone rich, not to anyone famous, but to lowly shepherds. Like, and being a shepherd was not a well-respected profession in Jesus' time. For one thing, they were known as being dishonest, for stealing as they moved throughout the countryside. In fact, they were thought of as so dishonest they were not allowed to testify in court. But perhaps the even more significant reason that shepherds were thought of so poorly is that their job 
like made them ceremonially unclean. When you live out in a field, there are a lot of Jewish laws that you just can't keep. So if we're going to like rank groups based on their social status in Jesus' time, like starting from the bottom, you have like lepers and shepherds. Right? Like second from the bottom. And like the very first people who received news about the birth of the Savior, the very first witnesses who will testify to what they saw are people who are so untrustworthy that they can't even testify in court. And it's easy to like romanticize the shepherds, right? or to think like, well, surely God came to like the small group of good ones out there. But to think that misses the point. And it shouldn't surprise us that Luke is the one who mentions the shepherds. He's the only gospel who mentions them. Because Luke has this unique focus in his gospel compared to the other gospels on the poor, on the downtrodden, and on the outcast. And that pattern is set right from the beginning of Jesus' life through this announcement to the shepherds. Jesus came for people who had done nothing to deserve his grace. Jesus came for people who knew that they can't be righteous before God in their own power. Jesus came for the needy. And Jesus came for sinners. Later in the book of Luke, Luke's going to record Jesus as saying, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So look, if you you think you're spiritually healthy, or you think you have righteousness in your own power, then you're missing the point of Christmas. Like you're not understanding why Jesus came. We're all sinners. We have all rejected God. We have nothing to offer. We have no reason God should come to us. We are no better than lying, stealing, untrustworthy, unclean shepherds. But the glorious truth of Christmas is that Jesus came for the shepherds. And he came for us. While we were his enemies, Christ came in humility. He lived a sinless life of humility. He had an agonizing death of humility for you, for us, because he loved us so much. And so, like, can we just can we put aside are familiar with the story and be surprised anew by God's love for us in sending Jesus. That the God of the universe, the God we rejected, would come for us. And when he came, there was no room for Jesus in the guest house. And that's a great injustice that the people of Bethlehem would not make room for Jesus. But at least the people of Bethlehem acted out of ignorance. They did not make room for him because they did not know that the child in Mary's womb was the Son of God. But we have no such excuse. And so the question then is, have you made room for Jesus? First and foremost, have you made room for Jesus in your heart by trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins?
But beyond that, if you've done that, like, do you make room for Jesus in your morning routine? Like, do you make room for Jesus in your finances, in your work? Like, do you make room for Jesus in how your home runs? Do you make room for Jesus in how you treat other people? Norval Glennon House has written, What the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in their ignorance is done by many today in willful indifference. They refuse to make room for the Son of God. They give no place to Him in their feelings, their affections, their thoughts, their views of life, their wishes, their decisions, their actions, or their daily conduct. Like my hope for us this Christmas is that that would not be us. That as we celebrate Christmas this coming week, that we would all take time to be surprised anew at what God did for us at Christmas. And that surprise would fuel us and cause us to make room for Jesus in every area of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you. We praise you for what you've done for us. In sending Jesus. Jesus, you gave up all the glories of heaven. You gave up all your rights to become a man, to live among us, to suffer among us, to be tempted as we are, yet to do it all without ever sinning, and to be put to death on a cross, that we may have eternal life. God, help us to never take that for granted. Help us to never lose sight of how hopeless we are apart from you and what you've done for us in Jesus. Help us to give you praise and honor and glory because of how great you are and how much you loved us in sending Jesus. God, would you be glorified in our lives this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to, here in a minute, end our live stream.